We're going to be looking today in John chapter 1 and also John 6 and John 12. So if you want your Bible, if you, if you have your Bible out, be ready for that. Uh, I'm going to start with a story that you're going to think is a story about me, but it's actually about my son, Will. And I asked his permission to tell this story, just so you know. I wanted to make sure. Uh, so this happened years ago. He's, he's going to turn 20 this month, which is crazy to me. But he's, he, this happened when he was in junior high. So that tells you how long ago this was. Back in those days, some of you who've been here long enough remember, we didn't have a next steps area. The next steps area where I go after the service and people can come talk to me if they need to make a decision or, or want to ask questions. We didn't have that. So back then, after every service, I would just go stand by those glass doors in the atrium, and I would greet people as they left. Essentially, I'd try to catch everyone and force them to say hi to me. Um, so on this day, I was waiting out there after the sermon was over, and the first person out those back doors was this guy I'd never met. He was probably late 60s, well-dressed. He made a beeline for me. And I'm going to sum up what he had to say, because it took a long time. But his basic thing was he wanted me to know that the members of my church weren't really saved because we didn't baptize you the right way. We didn't, we didn't say the right words when we dipped you under the water and therefore you were, you are lost. Um, and I, of course he didn't have any biblical justification for this. And so I presented the biblical arguments that he was wrong and that salvation is not that complicated, but he, he didn't care about any of that because he'd had a dream. Now, by the way, in case you're wondering, no dream you have trumps what the word of God says. I hope you just know that, but I assume you do. In his dream, he saw all these people, as far as the, I could see, lined up single file, marching into the fires of hell, and God told him, this is what's going to happen if churches don't start baptizing the way I tell you. Now, he's telling me this, and, and believe me, I am shortening this by a lot. And I'm not proud of this, but I was getting angry, and I don't I, I, I've been praying a long, long time, a, a lot of my life, to be a more patient person, and I don't, I don't believe it's ever right to lose your temper, and especially not in the church. So I'm not proud of this, but I was starting to get angry, first of all, because out of the corner of my eye, I could see people were leaving, and I didn't get to talk to them. And some of those were people who were struggling with various things, and I, I, know I, I knew I needed to say a word of encouragement to them, but they were just walking out because this guy was monopolizing me. Uh, but secondly, his absolute screwball theology was getting on my last nerve because if we believe in a God, the scriptures tell us about, who loves us so much, he'd literally die for us, right? So would that same God keep us out of heaven on a technicality? That doesn't make any sense. What kind of monstrous God would do that? But I have to admit, I was also getting angry, and those two are kind of righteous indignation things, I can honestly say, but I was also getting angry because this guy was annoying the crud out of me. He just wouldn't shut up. And it, it reached a, a, a pinnacle when I looked around and realized that aside from Alan and Candace Armstrong and maybe a couple of other people I couldn't see, everybody was gone. This guy had, had kept me occupied in his agenda until everybody was gone. And I just, I just snapped. I lost it. Y'all have never seen me do this, uh, I hope. But I just, I got furious and I, I said, get out right now. I've had enough of you. Get out. And I just, he kept trying to protest and I just cut him off and said, get, get now. I talked to him like he was a dog. And I let him, I didn't touch him, thank God. I didn't lay hands on him, but I, I led him over to the, 
the glass door and I opened it and I let him outside and he turned on his heel when he got outside and he held up his hand and he said, I now pronounce upon you the curse of Paul. And I, I, I let the door shut and as it was shutting, I said, well, I'll see you in heaven and I walked away. That was the only thing I could think to say. Um, now, I don't know to this day what the curse of Paul is. If, if, I mean, my hair hasn't fallen out. I haven't, you know, become a, a werewolf or something, you know. So if you know what the curse of Paul is or you look it up and you find out, please don't tell me. I'm very comfortable in my ignorance, okay? So here's why this is a story about Will. After I had let the door close in this guy's face and turned around, that's when I realized for the first time that my son, my junior high age son, had been standing there watching his dad banish somebody's grandpa from the church. And I felt horrible. I'd thrown this guy into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And my seventh grader had witnessed this. And I apologized to him. And then later on, we were in the car together and I'd kind of calmed down a little bit. And I said, well, listen, I, again, I'm sorry that you saw your dad act like that. And I said, what, did, what were you thinking when you, when you saw that? And completely serious, no irony at all. He said, I was thinking... I really wish mom would act that way after church when people are talking to us and I want to get to lunch. <laughs> Some of you know well and you're not surprised. So I, I tell you that story because my son is an introvert. And I knew nothing about introverts before he was born because I'm, I'm not an extreme extrovert because I like my time alone, but I'm very comfortable around people. I'm, I'm comfortable meeting new people. I'm comfortable going up and engaging people and starting conversations. But, but people who have an introverted personality, that's not their style. That's not their personality. It's hard for them. Now, they want friends just as much as the rest of us, but it's hard for them to go up to a stranger or even someone they know well and just say, hey, how's it going? Uh, a conversation that for, for others might seem perfectly natural seems like, like, like climbing the, the Empire State Building to them. If you invite an introvert to an event, here's what's going to happen to them. They're going to spend a day or more trying to psych themselves up to go because it's a terrifying thought. And if they do go, afterwards they'll torture themselves scrutinizing every conversation they had at that event and saying, okay, was I an, was I an idiot? Did I, did I offend that person? It is, it is a difficult thing. And, and one of the things that, that is to their benefit is they at least have enough self-awareness to have jokes, okay? So here's one. How much does an introvert weigh? Not enough to break the ice. Uh, here's another one. How many introverts does it take to change a light bulb? Well, if it's going to be a group activity, they'll just sit in the dark. So they have jokes, they understand, but when we talk about transforming relationships, and if you're new here, that's our vision as a church. We believe that it's, it's God's purpose for his people to bring peace to the chaos in our community. And whereas when I was growing up, the way you did that was, you, you had good preaching, you had good singing and a nice building and people would come and they'd hear the gospel on Sunday mornings and they'd get saved. And if they were too stubborn to come into the church building, you would go, go to their door with a, a 30 second gospel presentation and you would present it and they would get saved. And, and that worked for a long time. But we've realized two things. 
here in these, these recent days is, number one, irreligious people don't come to church anymore. It, when they're looking for answers, the church is the last place they're going to look. So we can't expect them to come and hear the gospel unless we invite them personally. Uh, and secondly, if we go to their door and we share the gospel, and if you continue to do that, I, I encourage you to. It's just harder these days because people unlike 50 years ago in this country, no longer have a respect for the authority of Scripture. So if you come up and say, here's what it says in the book of Romans, they say, well, that's nice, but I don't believe in Romans. So we believe our vision, our vision is to bring peace to chaos by transforming relationships. In other words, by ordinary people leaving the church and going out and engaging with people, investing in people who are struggling and showing them the love of God and investing over as long a period of time as it takes to show them what God's love is like, and they eventually want to hear the gospel. That's what we believe is our purpose. Um, but if you're an introverted person, that sounds terrifying. And there are others of you who may not be introverted, but you'll say, well, how can I get somebody's life together when my own life isn't together? I'm a mess. How can I help anyone else? And others of you who would say, well, I don't really know the Bible well enough to explain anything to anyone. And others would say, I don't have enough education or sophistication to, uh, to argue or debate with people who have all these incredible arguments against Christianity, so I'm out. There are a lot of people, I would bet, in this room who feel inadequate. So as we start this series, looking at people in the scriptures who had transforming relationships, I want to start with someone who doesn't fit the profile of the dynamic soul-winning evangelist. You've heard his name if you've been in church, or you've read the Bible, but there's actually only three stories about him in the scriptures, and his name is Andrew. I want to introduce him to you today and show you how he shows us a quiet person changes the world. So in John chapter 1, verse 35, is the first of the three stories. The next day again, John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. See, it's an interesting thing about Andrew. In the Eastern Orthodox churches, they have a special name for him. They call him the Protokletos, which is Greek for the first called. Because Andrew, of all the 12 disciples, was the first one to believe in Jesus. But we know way more about Peter than we know about Andrew. Because Peter was Mr. Ta-da, here I am. Look at my gifts. Look at my passion for the Lord. He was always the first one to answer whenever Jesus asked a question. Even when Jesus didn't ask a question, he was the first one to speak. He was the one who got out of the boat and tried to walk on the water. He was the one who first proclaimed Christ as Messiah. He was the one who preached on Pentecost Sunday and 3,000 people got saved. He was the one who led the church when Jesus went back up into heaven. He was the one that, that went to prison for the gospel and got released by an angel. I mean, you could go on and on. He wrote two books of the New Testament. All we have of Andrew, in contrast, are the three stories we're going to look at today. That's it. 
And there's no mention of his preaching. There's no mention of the miracles he performed. In the book of Acts, which is the history of the movement of Jesus after Jesus is gone, Andrew's not even mentioned once. Now, all of that doesn't prove that Andrew was an introvert, but it does prove that Peter was more predominant. He was the one who got attention. Andrew was more behind the scenes. He was quiet. Now, what do we do with that? How does a quiet person change the world? There's three things we see in these three stories, three things that every one of us can and must do. And the first one is, tell what you know. So everybody knows about Peter, but without Peter, without Andrew, there's no Peter. Peter doesn't know Jesus if Andrew doesn't first come to him and say, hey, I've met someone and I think he's the Messiah. You got to come see. Notice, Andrew doesn't have all the theology worked out. He hasn't heard uh, exhaustively all of Jesus' teachings on every subject in Judaism or the world. He doesn't know about Jesus' miracles yet. All he knows is his teacher who he trusted, John the Baptist, said, this is the one, this is the Lamb of God. And he went up and talked to him and said, yeah, I can see it. And now he goes to Peter and says, come and see. He tells what he knows. There's another story kind of similar in Scripture that that reminds me of this, and that's a story in John chapter 9, where Jesus heals a blind man, a man who was born blind. And now he's past 40, he's past middle age, and he's still blind, and Jesus comes and restores and gives him sight for the very first time. And people are amazed, and they come flocking to see this. And immediately the scribes and the Pharisees, who are the enemies of the gospel at that time, who've already decided in their own minds that they don't believe in Jesus, they've got a problem on their hands. Because here's the thing with human nature, sin nature. Once we've already made up a decision about a person, we've got a narrative in our minds, we don't want to change that. So when something happens that seems to mean that we're wrong, we we find a workaround. So so the scribes and the Pharisees, they're interrogating this formerly blind man because Jesus is gone at this point. And they're like, okay, admit that he was a sinner. He's like, what do you mean? Well, he, he healed you on the Sabbath. And so we think he's a sinner and he can't be the Messiah. Now, remember, This formerly blind guy has never met Jesus before this day. He doesn't know his teachings. He doesn't know anything about the prophecies that Jesus is going to fulfill. So here's what he says. Here's his response. John 9, verse 25. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Isn't that beautiful? He just tells his story. I don't know anything else. I just know what he did for me. And and, and the scribes and Pharisees are so angry at that, they throw him out of the synagogue. They say, you're not a Jew anymore because you have hit us with an argument we can't debate. We can't refute the fact that you once were blind and now you can see. We can't refute the fact that Jesus has changed your life. So since this destroys our whole argument, we're just going to banish you so no one can meet you and be convinced. See, here's the thing. You may not be able to beat one of Miss Kathy's fifth graders in a Bible trivia contest. You may not know all the particular specific scriptures in the Roman road that lead someone to salvation. You may not know how to, uh, how to answer the questions of educated skeptics. And those are all areas where you can grow, where you should be seeking to grow. But in the meantime, and even after that, you still have a story. 
If you are a believer in Jesus, if you are redeemed by his blood, then a miracle has happened in your life. And it may not look like the miracle that happened in Paul's life on the road to Damascus, but it is every bit as spectacular. And I'm not just talking about your conversion experience. I'm talking about the things that he has done in you since and the difference he has made in your life. You have a story. And just like those scribes and Pharisees, the most, the most sophisticated and educated skeptic could come to you and, and present you with questions that you can't answer and arguments that you can't refute. And you, you, you could say, yeah, but here's what Jesus did for me. And they would have nothing to say in response. Because there's no argument against what's happened to you. Your story is powerful. Your story is amazing. And it's true. So use it. And when I say use it, when I say tell what you know, here's what I mean. Three examples. At, at work, you hear some people talking about the latest Christian scandal. Sad to say, these things happen. Some preacher does something bad. Some Christian they know is exposed as a hypocrite, and they're talking about it, and you come upon this conversation. How do you, as a Christian, respond? I think the best way you can respond is by saying, guys, let me explain something to you. Christians aren't perfect. They're just redeemed. We're still sinners, and we're still going to make mistakes, but Jesus is perfect. Let me tell you what he did for me. Or second example, uh, someone comes to you and they're like, why did God allow this evil thing to happen? Why is God allowing this terrible stuff in Israel, in the Ukraine? Why did this natural disaster occur? Why did this bad thing happen in my life if God is a God of love? And you can respond by saying, the truth is I don't know, but let me tell you what he did for me. And then after that, you say, so because of that, I know that whatever the answer is to your question, it certainly isn't that he doesn't care. He must have a reason for allowing this that, that, that is best for everyone involved because he loves us and I'm proof. And, and then there's a third example, and this is what I hope happens to every one of us at times, and that is when people come and say, tell me your secret, why are you so joyful? Or why are you so compassionate? Or why are you so forgiving? Or why are you so courageous in, in dark times? Because they've been around you long enough. They've seen a difference in you. You've been salt. You've been light in their lives. And you can respond. You must respond by saying, well, it's not me. Trust me. Thank you for your kind words. But the truth is, anything good in me is because of Jesus. And then you tell your story. And there are a lot of other examples I could give you. My challenge is, that you would pray and say, Lord, show me opportunities I have to tell the story of what you've done for me and give me the boldness to share it. You don't know how powerful that is until you try. So you can tell what you know, but secondly, you can give what you have. The second story about Andrew is in John chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii or worth of bread would not be enough to, for each of them to get a bite or a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? I remember hearing that story over and over again when I was a little boy. My Sunday school teachers, when I was a kid, would tell that at least once a year, always from the perspective of, that, of the little boy in the story who had the lunch. 
I'm sure their, their purpose was to say, see, even somebody who's a little kid can offer something to the Lord, which is true. It was only when I was an adult and began to read the Bible for myself that I noticed the little boy is barely even mentioned. We don't know his name. We don't hear about his mother. We don't know anything except that Andrew says, here's a lunch. We assume that Andrew did not steal it from the little boy, but the little boy gave it to Andrew. But either way, Andrew comes to Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is the focus is on the two disciples, not the kid. Philip, the first one, who, when he's tested by Jesus, says, well, there's nothing we can do. This is impossible. Andrew doesn't seem to have any more faith than his friend Philip. No more knowledge of what Jesus is about to do. But he does say, I got something. I don't know what you can do with it, but I'll, I'll give it to you. And because he gives it, lives get changed. We know the rest of the story, right? 5,000 men plus women and children get fed enough food to, to fill them up so they can stand and listen to Jesus talk for an entire day. This is an amazing miracle that only happens because Andrew gives what he has. Now, the great American philosopher, Dirty Harry Callahan, famously said, a man's got to know his limitations. And we all do that, don't we? We all are very aware of how limited we are. And we can all easily think of reasons why God cannot and should not use us to do anything significant. And when we list all those limitations, we think we're being humble, but we're not. Because humility is not lack of self-esteem. Humility is a lack of self-centeredness. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. God wants you to be confident in His ability to use you because you are His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared ahead of time for you to do, Ephesians 2.10. So when we doubt whether God can use us, we're not being humble. We're doubting God. We're listening to the devil. So the next time you're making excuses for why, no, I know they need volunteers in that ministry, but no, I, I'm not qualified. Or the next time you're like, you know, I barely make any money, so I shouldn't even give an offering because what good would it do? Or the next time you're, you're looking at someone who's hurting and struggling and you're saying to yourself, somebody else should probably help them because I'd only make their lives worse. Remember, you're not being humble. You're listening to the devil. God brought that opportunity for you to make a contribution and you should take advantage of it. And remember Andrew, who essentially walked up to Jesus and said, I found five sardines and a couple of donut holes, but I don't know what good that'll do. But he gave it. And so 15,000 people witnessed a miracle and many of them probably came to know Christ as their savior. Give what you have. Ask yourself the question, am I giving what I have? Am I offering to the Lord everything that I have? Finally, number three, those first two, you've heard that sermon before. This one you may not have. The third lesson we learned from Andrew in his third story is we need to gravitate toward seekers. Here's what I mean. In John 12, 20 through 24, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the feast means it's Passover time. 
And that means the city of Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims. Jews from all over the Mediterranean have come home to worship the Lord in his temple. But among those pilgrims, there are also some Gentiles. There were people, the, the New Testament calls them God-fearers, who, although Gentile, would look at the God of Israel and say, I want to know more. I want to seek after him. I want to find out who he is. He might actually be what I'm looking for. So these Greeks are some of those God-fearers. They've come, not only are they seeking the God of Israel, but they've come to believe that this man, Jesus, this Nazarene rabbi, might be the key. And they want to hear from him themselves. Now, the reason they approach Philip uh, is because he's from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a town in northern Galilee where there's a heavy Gentile po uh, population in that time. Maybe they're from there themselves. Maybe they see him and say, oh, I know that guy. Or maybe they just overhear him speaking Greek and they say, this guy can help us. But either way, when they come to Philip, it's obvious Philip doesn't know what to do. He goes to Andrew. Andrew hears and says, well, let's go to Jesus. See, Philip, I'm sure, was thinking like the rest of human nature, 99% of human beings, I only care about my people. <laughs> I only care about people who look like me and speak my language. I only care about my fellow Jews. What do these Gentiles have to do with the Messiah of Israel? That's not the way God wants us to be, but in our sin nature, that's how we act. Andrew, on the other hand, says, somebody seeking Jesus? Well, let's go to him. Let's tell him. He's going to want to know this. He's going to want to talk to them. They need salvation too. He gravitated toward the seekers, even though they weren't his people. Now, I need to speak very personally to you about something that's a little sensitive and tender. And that is that I've learned as a pastor that in every family, there's some pain. There's someone who you're worried about. Maybe, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a parent, maybe further out, a cousin, a, a nephew, a, a, an in-law. But somebody, there's a black sheep there. There's someone who has turned away from the faith that has gone off the rails morally. Someone who, maybe they're, maybe they're struggling in mental illness or addiction. Maybe there's a marriage that's barely hanging on. Maybe there's a child that's estranged from parents. There's somebody who your heart is broken for in your family, if you're like every other family I know. And I want to say two things to you. First of all, this is a bitter truth, but it's true. People who are headed in the wrong direction, will usually listen to anybody but the people who love them the most. This is just a truism. It's not always true, but it's often true. And, and ladies, if you're married, you know that I'm right because you have, you have discovered things that would help your husbands if they would listen to you, but they won't listen to you, right? But, but if they're the guy, the random guy they come across on the golf course says the exact same thing to them, uh, they come home acting like they heard a voice from heaven. I don't know, ladies, why we're this way. I, I frankly don't know how you live with us, but it is true. It is actually true for all of us. And so you find to your heartbreak that you're trying to speak truth to this loved one of yours and they won't listen. So here's what you do. You pray. You don't give up on them. You keep praying. You keep loving them. But you also pray, Lord, send someone into their lives that they will listen to. And it may be a coworker, it may be a friend, it may be a total stranger, but someone who will look at them and say, this is the person God has sent me to speak to. And maybe they'll listen to that person instead. But here's the second thing I want to say. I have seen this way too many times. 
Too many Christians are so focused on that one person or those, that, those, that handful of people in their family who need to come back to God or who need to come to Christ, and, and they totally miss the dozens of people all around them who are right now seeking salvation. They may not know they're seeking God, but they've gotten to the end of their rope. They've realized, I have no answers. They're looking for something, and they just need somebody to come alongside them and say, let me pray for you, friend and put a hand on their shoulder and say a prayer out loud that says, I love you and God loves you. They just need someone to come along and say, I, I think I have the answers you're looking for because I found something that if you found it too, would change everything for you. But we don't see that. We're focused on the, the immediate need in front of us and we're missing the people who are ready to hear from a believer in Christ. That's what transforming relationships are all about. It's, it's broadening our thinking so we realize, you know, this, this lady cuts my hair. I've never, I don't even know her name. Maybe it's time I figured that out. You know, this, this coworker seems like he's really down. Maybe I should go up and ask how I can pray for him. You know, this, this lady teaches my kids. She's doing a great service for my own flesh and blood. Maybe I should just write her a note and say, how can I pray for you? That's what transforming relationships are. And that's how people are getting saved these days. Gravitate toward the seekers. Find those who are seeking Christ by talking to people, by listening to people, by paying attention, by praying that God would show you what's going on around you. See, this is how God works. God does some amazing miracles in the scriptures. And even today, some of you could testify about miraculous healing or other things that are unexplainable apart from the existence of God. But the truth is, most of the time, most of the work he does is quiet. Notice what Jesus says when Andrew comes to him and tells him about these Greeks who are seeking him. First, he says, well, that means the hour has come. How does he know that? He knows, he knows that He's come to give his life for the sins of the world. And the fact that all of a sudden now Gentiles are starting to seek him, that means the time has come. That was the signal that he and the father had arranged. The time has come. It's time for me to give my life. And then he says, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit. He's explaining what's about to happen. I'm going to die, but I'm not going to stay dead. Out of that ground will come something better. The whole world will change because I'm coming back from the dead. Think about that image, though. There's nothing more, less spectacular than planting a seed in the ground. You plant a seed in the ground and nothing happens for a long, long, long time. Jesus is saying, I'm doing my work quietly. I'm not going to pull out a, a big sword and, and destroy my enemies. I'm not going to call down fire from heaven. I'm not going to kick Caesar off the throne and claim the throne for myself. I'm going to do the meekest thing possible. I'm going to let people kill me. I'm going to do this work in quiet, but it's going to change the world. If you are a quiet person, or even if you're not, understand the best and most important things happen in the quiet. They happen by obeying God by trusting in him, by telling a story, by, by sharing something that seems small, by, by just gravitating toward people who seem to be hurting and seem to need someone. That's all. Are you willing? Because I, I can just tell you by experience, there's a lot of great things you can accomplish in the world, but nothing comes close to the satisfaction and the joy of knowing that you've been used by God to change somebody's life.